you have your Bible, if you would turn to Acts chapter 10, if you don't have a Bible with you, let me invite you to use the Pew Bible located in front of you. You can turn to page 778. The book of Acts is the first book following the four Gospels in the New Testament. And uh, this text will serve as our foundation. This morning we're continuing a series, a seven-week series on experiencing God, the seven realities. And again, just to give you some broader context, over the last two and a half years, the Lord has been speaking to us about shifting, which is a dislodging and a repositioning or an accelerating and intensifying. And we've been experiencing both of those things in our midst, both corporately and individually. And recently, back this spring, the Lord began to speak to my heart uh, about this shift and said that he was looking for more than, I mean, we'd, we'd been preaching a series of st- on strategic shifts and all of those were significant and important, but in addition to those strategic shifts, the Lord was inviting us to a place of radical shift, that he was calling us to radical shift. And as I've shared over these last weeks, the word radical doesn't exactly, I mean, the, 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 the root foundation meaning of that word is different than what we might intuitively expect. It actually means to return to the root. And the Lord is inviting us in this time to do a radical shift. He's looking to shift us at the roots. He's not simply interested in sort of rearranging the furniture in our lives. He's actually interested in moving foundation stones. And this series on experiencing God is about moving foundational stones. See, experiencing God is about much more than simply knowing about God. It is actually entering into an encounter with the living God. Those are two very different things. We can know a lot about God, but when we encounter Him, when we experience Him, when we walk in what Jesus describes as eternal life, which is not something for the sweet by and by, but is in the here and now, eternal life is knowing Christ and knowing the One who sent Him. That is what eternal life is. When we enter into that eternal life, We do that, we enter in through experiencing God. Now, over these last weeks, we've looked at a number of different realities. And if you've not been with us, you're welcome to sign up. You can always get CDs and PowerPoints of previous messages. There's a table in the back where you can sign up for that. Or you can go to our website, www.bcfnations.org. And in there, you will also find... Uh, you can download on MP3 files the, um, the, the sermons uh, from this series as well as back quite a ways. Now, these seven realities begin with reality number one, which is that God is always at work around you. God is always at work around you. Reality number two is that God pursues a continuing love relationship with you that is real and personal. Reality three 
is that God invites you to become involved with Him in His work. Now that's where we really begin to to make some of those radical shifts when we recognize that He's inviting us to work with Him. A lot of times we think about inviting God to work with us when what He really wants from us is to find out what He's doing and join Him in His work. Which leads us into reality four, which is that God speaks by the Holy Spirit through the Bible, prayer, circumstances, and the church to reveal Himself, His purposes, and His ways. God doesn't play hide-and-seek. In John 15, He calls us friends because friends know what friends are doing. And so He calls us friends and says, I will make known to you what I'm doing. Which leads us to reality five, and that is that God's invitation for you to work with Him always leads you to a crisis of belief that requires faith and action. And that's where we camped out last week. Now, James Underwood did a marvelous job presenting that here last week, and um, I had the opportunity to speak in BCF Minneapolis last Sunday morning. But that was the theme, and that's sort of that, the, the, the first crisis that we go, go through. And crisis means a decision point. A crisis means to decide, to choose. When we stand at that threshold and God's inviting us into something, at that threshold, there's a crisis, a decision point, a choice that must be made. Will we step forward in faith and step out into what God is speaking and saying to us? Quickly on the heels of that crisis comes the next crisis, which is what we'll be looking at this morning. And that crisis is that you must make major adjustments in your life to join God in what He is doing. You must make major adjustments in your life. For many of us, we would like to say, Oh God, use me. Oh Lord, I'm available. I'm willing, just as long as you don't mess up my life in the process. (laughs) Well, guess what? When we enter in to God's work, we, you know, we want God to adjust to us. Let's be honest. Come on. We really do. Most of us, we really want God to adjust His plans around us our lives, our interests, our desire. You know, God, would you just sort of adjust a little? Guess what? Uh, God's really not all that interested in adjusting to you. Okay? Sorry. But he's very interested in inviting you to adjust to him and to what he is doing. And then reality seven, which we'll be looking at next week, is that you come to know God by experience as you obey Him and He accomplishes His work through you. All right. Well, this morning, you must make major adjustments in your life to join God in what He's doing. The best way I know to, to preach about this and to teach about this is to illustrate it from one of the greatest examples 
that I know of in the scripture, and that is found in Acts chapter 10, which is really a, a sort of a, a foundational scripture for our life together here as well. In fact, it would probably not be an overstatement to say that if Peter had not gone through this experience and not been willing to make the major adjustment in his life, we probably wouldn't be sitting here this morning. It's that significant. And and so I, I guess I want to encourage you this morning as well with that to recognize that what may seem to you like a sacrifice, and it may very well be a sacrifice, that major adjustment that the Lord is inviting you to make, may have an impact not simply on your life, but on generations to come. Until Jesus comes, we have no idea how much those adjustments in our life, the trickle-down effect of that into the lives of those around us and those that we may never even meet. So, let's enter into our text. Acts chapter 10. Please have it with you so that you can read along with us this morning and interact. I want you, I want to hear pages and I want, to, I want you to be feeling the word here this morning. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. Now, just to get you quickly oriented, Caesarea is on the coast of Palestine, 30 miles north of Joppa, uh, south of Mount Carmel, largely Gentile. It's the center of Roman administration. Lots of Herod the Great's buildings are there. And Cornelius, it says here, it tells us about him, he is a centurion in what is known as the Italian Regiment. Now, a centurion was a non-commissioned officer who was in charge of a hundred soldiers, A regiment was um, six of those, um, six of those come together uh, into a, um, the Italian regiment or a cohort was of 600 men, and that was one-tenth of a legion. So a legion was 6,000, a cohort or a regiment was 600, and A centurion was over one-sixth of that, over 100 men, a non-commissioned officer. So we find that out about Cornelius. He's a Roman, he's a soldier, he's a non-commissioned officer, over 100. He and all of his family, now it tells us a bit more, were devout and God-fearing and gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. Now, when it says here, God-fearing, it was not only speaking of his character, it was also describing and giving a a name to him. He was, and he and his family were literally known as God-fearers. God-fearers were those who followed most of the Jewish law, stopping short of circumcision and full conversion to the Jewish faith. But these were ones who who followed much of of Jewish law and, and... and followed much of Jewish practice. And we have here, and it shows here, that Cornelius was one of those who followed that practice by giving generously to those in need and praying to God regularly, which were two pillars, two two, um, significant acts that showed 
that you were a devout person following Yahweh. You would give generously, regularly, and you would pray regularly. There was both the devotional life as well as the um, very practical action life of a follower of God. One day, verse 3, at about... Three in the afternoon, this would have been one of the normal times for prayer. So it's likely, if he's praying regularly as a God-fearer, he's, he's likely, dur- during a time of prayer, he had a vision. And he distinctly saw an angel of God, or in some translations, the angel of the Lord. This is the messenger. It speaks of, of God's messenger coming to Cornelius. And he came to him and said... Cornelius! And Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. Now, he's not necessarily speaking to the angel in the sense of saying that, you know, exalting the angel to that place, but he is recognizing that this is a messenger of the Lord who has come to speak to him and give a message to him. And the angel of the Lord answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. As this incense that goes up before the nostrils of God. God has taken notice, Cornelius, of your prayer and of your gifts to the poor. He has attended, God has attended to your acts of devotion. Now, verse 5, send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel of the Lord, who spoke to him, had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants and told them what had happened and sent them to Joppa. Now I love this about Cornelius as a fearer of God. A wonderful example of what we're going to be talking about next week, this obedience. God has spoken to him and said, send to Joppa. To Peter, to Simon, who's Peter, who's staying at Simon the Tanner's. Cornelius doesn't ask lots of questions. At least we don't, I mean, maybe in his head he was asking questions, but in his actions and in his heart, he simply responds in obedience and does what the angel of the Lord has commanded him to do. And he says yes. And so now the scene is going to shift to Joppa. And Joppa is a seaport on the Palestinian coast, about 30 miles away, so it would have been at least a a one-day, maybe, you know, a a long day's walk. Interestingly, Joppa, you know, one little historical footnote, which, interesting in light of what happens next, is the point from which Jonah had tried to refuse God's call to go to to Nineveh. So... So Joppa already, you know, it's got a little bit of a history. 
It was the launching point for Jonah when the Lord spoke to him and Jonah said, and, and God asked for some major adjustments in Jonah's life and Jonah said, not me. Well, you know, God has his ways of helping us make our major adjustments as we know from the story of Jonah. And they're going to Simon the Tanners. Now, it's interesting because Peter, I mean, we already have Peter sort of stepping out of the box a little bit, out of his comfort zone, staying at the home of Simon the Tanners would have been for sure at least borderline because a tanner is somebody who works with dead animals and furs and so therefore would have been ritually unclean. But Peter is there at the house of Simon the Tanner. Now, the scene shifts now from Cornelius and his men to Peter. It says, About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. Now again, noon would have been one of the times for prayer. You know, six, nine, noon, three and six. All right? So, so this would have been one of the five times of prayer where, where Peter would have been up on the roof to pray. He became hungry, wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. Now, one of the things I just love about, you know, I mean, Peter is just, you know, he's a guy. You go up to pray, you're hungry, the smell of dinner begins to rise up and you fall into a trance. Okay? Guys, we understand this, right? Okay? I know I should be, oh, Lord. Hmm. Ah. So Peter falls into a, it's a, a waking sleep. It's that in-between place between alertness and sleep and, and yet there's still activity that's going on. And it's, it's actually a, a powerful place. That in-between place is a place where, where the Lord often, I'd say pay attention to what the Lord does in those in-between places uh, in your own life. It says, He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. And it contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice told him, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. Now verse 14 are words that generally are not really wise for any of us to utter. Literally, Peter simply says, No, Lord which is really oxymoronic to put those two words in the same sentence. No, Lord. Because if he's Lord, what other possible answer is there other than yes? (laughs) But in fact, this is the third time that Peter has said, surely not, Lord. He said it in in Matthew chapter 16 when he had the revelation of Christ being the Son. And then Jesus says, well, here's what that means. I'm going to suffer and die. And and, and Peter says, not you, no, surely not. And in John 13, when Jesus comes 
just before he is going to be arrested and, and ultimately tried and crucified and, and he's with his disciple and he's washing their feet and Peter says, well, no! Because each time Peter was misunderstanding and misinterpreting God's intention. And I would submit to you this morning that it is possible for us Remember, prophetic things come with information, interpretation, and application. It is possible for any of us, however mature we may be, for us when we receive information to still misinterpret or misapply. And this is where we desperately need the grace of the Lord to come and to help us and to adjust. Our thoughts, our actions, all of those things. And so, the Lord does this graciously for Peter. Surely not, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. My permanent record is pure. Look, I've never eaten anything. That your law, that I have read and studied and understood and, and, and the and the cultural constraints in which I've grown up with have told me I cannot do. And the voice called to him, spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Now at this point, please note something. This isn't about killing animals. This isn't the point of what God is going after in Peter's heart. God is using this occasion to go after something deeper in Peter that needs adjustment. This happened three times. And that three times is that, you know, the Lord does it three times to bring emphasis. Three times Jesus spoke to Peter, remember, on the beach with the coal fire? After Peter had denied Jesus three, three times, Jesus says, do you love me? Three times brings that emphasis. It brings that confirmation. It does something deep in our spirit when the Lord reemphasizes something. Don't, you know, don't, don't dismiss when God says something more than once. He says stuff more than once, not because he's trying to waste his breath, but because he's trying to move something deeper into us and into our spirit. Now while Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. What a coincidence! That they showed up just at this time. Oh my! Yeah, right. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. And while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs and do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. And Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? And the men replied, we have come from Cornelius the centurion 
He's a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. And a holy angel told him to have you come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, now the scene shifts again. The next day, Peter started out with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea and Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. And as Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up and said, stand up, I'm only a man myself. And talking with him, Peter went inside, found a large gathering of people. And he said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or to visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So here Paul has made the, I mean, Peter has made the proper interpretation of what God has spoken to him through the sheet and through the animals. It wasn't about the animals. It was about don't call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, four days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour, three in the afternoon, and suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send a Joppa for Simon, who's called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Here we are. And Peter began to speak. Key words. Underline them, probably not in the Pew Bible, but please in your own Bible. And they're typed at the top of your bulletin as well to help remind you. Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but expects men, accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout Judea, preached in Galilee after the baptism, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they killed him by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He who was not seen by all of the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen. By us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. And all the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins, believes who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard his message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And Peter said, Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as... As we have, so he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked Peter 
to stay with them for a few days. Wow. Wow. This is a, this is a pivotal moment. This is a fulcrum in the church in the early church, in the early church history, it's a fulcrum, not just in Peter's life, but this begins the transformation that ultimately results in Acts 13 with the church at Antioch sending out Paul and Barnabas as missionaries to the Gentiles and the gospel beginning to spread throughout the whole earth. And it's because Peter went through this major adjustment in his life He had to contend with everything that he had been taught, everything that he had been known, how he had been nurtured culturally and educationally and experientially. He had to stand, he had to move. I mean, this was, we, it's so hard for us to even begin to imagine how enormous a foundation stone moved in Peter's life. But let me tell you, it was an enormous foundation stone this was a major adjustment this was not rearranging some furniture this was moving the whole foundation of his life let's talk about that for just a moment as we come to a close this morning let me uh let me make some let me let's unpack this for just a moment and bring it into your and my life with application. The first thing that Peter had to go through was an attitude adjustment. We all need to go through AA. Okay? Every single one of us needs to go through attitude adjustment. And there's a couple of components or ways that that happens. First of all, it's through repentance. Repentance is a point of transformation. It's a point when we're going one way and we recognize our error and we turn. Repentance is, you know, confession is saying the same thing as God. Repentance is a turning and it is turning and in a way that begins to align us with God. And then there is this process that happens of transformation that I call reorientation. So this attitude adjustment begins with repentance and continues with ongoing reorientation. In fact, if you go later on in the books of the New Testament, you'll find that Peter had some slippage in this area. He had repented He understood that God did not show favoritism. But then when push came to shove, there was some some of the cultural um, foundations of his life began to sort of readjust his life back towards his old patterns. And Paul had to take him on face-to-face, toe-to-toe, nose-to-nose, and say, Peter, you're out of line. You need to come back into reorientation. And so, so, that, so, so I, I would just simply say to us that that attitude adjustment that each of us must experience and go through is both point and process. It's something that goes on in our life probably throughout our lives.
That attitude affects our beliefs, our worldview, our thinking, our emotions. It affects our cultural backgrounds. It affects, it affects so many different things about us that, that are unconscious. I frequently tell people when they're going through pre-marriage counseling, we, we talk about icebergs. You know what an iceberg is, right? You know, there's a little bit out here and there's a lot down here. And I say to folks, okay, when you find yourself reacting in a way that is way beyond what, whatever particular event you might be experiencing right at that moment, it's probably that you've hit an iceberg of expectations. You've hit something unconscious in your life. So one of the ways, very practically, that you can pay attention is when you find yourself reacting to an invitation of God or you find yourself reacting in a particular situation that God has maybe called you into and you find your response is kind of much larger and way out of proportion even to what's happening, that might be a good indication that you've hit one of those AA moments where God is going to invite you, where there's something that's got to move in your life. It's got to move in your beliefs. It's got to move in your worldview, in the way that you think, in your emotions, in the the way you're wired even emotionally. Something God is moving in your life. For Peter, that attitude had to do with God's view of those who were not the chosen people. Of Gentiles. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2 these familiar words. For he himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one man to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through Him, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. This was an enormous shift in Peter's thinking, in his worldview. And Paul describes it here, what, that, what that's about. That through the cross, all people have access. All people are called to one family, to be part of one people. Now, It continues with an action adjustment. It always starts on the inside, but it always, it must by definition, end up with action points being taken. First action that happened here was that of relationship. Relationship begins to be built. Distance amplifies differences. That's a just a when 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 there is distance, when when we have this us versus them. I mean, Peter wasn't even allowed to go into the home of a Gentile. Therefore, with those distances, it continues to amplify differences. But when you begin to build relationships, I mean, one of the things that I've certainly experienced in all of my travels is incredible. Um, eye-opening experiences that have made me, 
you know, have definitely adjusted my attitudes as well as my actions. And over the years, God has granted me the opportunity to begin to build relationships. And through those relationships, break down those us versus them kinds of thinking. For Peter, it meant building relationship. It meant hospitality. Creating that safe place where strangers become friends. I mean, it's more than just a slogan we use around here. It's a reality which we must live out if we are going to fulfill our calling to be a house of prayer for all nations. Peter, I mean, he was invited in by Simon the Tanner and then when the, the, two, the two came from Cornelius, he invited them in and showed hospitality. And then when he went to Cornelius' house, Cornelius welcomed Peter. There's this constant interaction of hospitality that's happening. I have come to discover and learn. In fact, I, 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 I'm getting close to the place where I believe that hospitality is probably, if not the, it is certainly one of the key ingredients to our call as being the people of God. That's why Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, practice hospitality. That's why it's one of the requirements for being in leadership is to be hospitable. Because hospitality is a very practical action that happens at all kinds of levels and dimensions. I mean, it happens in our homes, but it, it's, a, it's a whole atmosphere that we create in our lives which welcomes strangers in. And Peter begins to practice hospitality here. And in doing so, transformation happens. Action affects our decisions our circumstances, our relationships. When we begin to step out, when our attitude changes, we begin to disturb the systems around us. When you, you know, whatever your situation, you sometimes, we might feel trapped in our workplace or in our school situation. We feel like we, you know, nothing can change. Let me tell you, you can change. And as you change, the system around you will begin to change. History is full. Scriptures are full. of The stories of those who have been transformed, who becomes transformational change agents. And that's what he calls us to. James 2, if you really keep, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law. As lawbreakers, for God does not show favoritism. There's action that comes alongside of the attitude. But there's one more third step that needs to happen. There needs to be an activism adjustment. Not only does Peter himself make this shift, but in doing so, those who are with him, and then when you go to Acts chapter 11, Peter explains his actions to the others and says, guess what? The gospel, it's not only for the Jews, it's for the Gentiles too. And he becomes an activist on behalf of the Gentiles. Again, which opens the door to the fact that we're here this morning. 
Peter had not changed his surely not Lord to yes Lord, we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be here. We need to become catalysts, ambassadors of the reconciling power of Christ to transform individuals, communities, and the world. That's what our mission statement is here at Bethel Christian Fellowship, a house of prayer for all nations. We are called to be a witness, a prophetic witness of the reconciling power of Christ. Who in himself creates peace, making the two one. And can transform not only individual lives, but communities and the world. Activism affects our priorities, our commitments, our comfort. It's not comfortable to be an activist. It isn't. (laughs) It's not comfortable. And it affects our priorities. It affects our commitments. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though once we regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We're therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Breaking Down Walls, a model of reconciliation in an age of racial strife, Raleigh Washington and Glenn Kieran deal specifically with the necessity of moving from attitude to action to activism. In a chapter entitled, Where Are My Ambassadors of Reconciliation? They write under the heading, Our Benign Neglect. The ministry of reconciliation can never be a mere passive acceptance of a theological truth, but must include active participation. Unfortunately, the Christian church at large, to state it the most favorable way, is guilty of benign neglect. At best, we've been standing quietly on the sidelines while racism continues to wreak havoc on our society. Most Christians, white, black, Hispanic, and Asian, have not directly attacked the problems of racism. True, most of us wouldn't march with the Ku Klux Klan or hurl epitaphs at a minority child integrating our schools, but few of us, children's churches or individuals, have made it a priority to heal the divisions between black, white, brown, or yellow by deliberately and intentionally building relationships across racial lines. Satan has used race to divide believers and make a mockery of our faith. And we as Christians have not stood against it. We sing they will know we are Christians by our love, but as black, white, Asian, and Hispanic Christians, we harbor fear and mistrust, anger and hatred in our hearts towards each other. Christ is holding out his nail-pierced palms. Where are my ambassadors of reconciliation? I died on the cross to heal the divisions between you. I have given you the ministry of reconciliation. Why are my children still alienated from one another? Why is the sound... The wound of racism still festering in my church. Where are my ambassadors? As ambassadors for Christ, we must bring the ministry of reconciliation specifically to the area of racial alienation. Our consciousness has been raised. Many laws have been changed. It is even politically correct to be racially tolerant. But that is not reconciliation. He's calling us to more. And I believe he's calling this house to more. to be messengers, to be agents, to be change agents, to be catalysts, to be activists. Through relationship, through hospitality, and all of the other attendant ways that that becomes as we begin to deal 
with not only individual but systemic evil in our society. So, where can we begin? You and I. Whatever the issue is, and this is one issue among... I mean, I'm giving an illustration. But the Lord, by His Spirit, I believe will speak into each of your hearts where you need to have major adjustments in your life. Attitudinally, actionally, and activistically. Where do I begin? You begin by admitting. It's a really good place to start to say, okay, yeah, I'm out of alignment. I need adjustment. Admit it. Nobody, you know, it's the hardest thing. It's so hard on our pride to say, yep, I'm wrong. Admit. Submit. Boy, that really gets uncomfortable. But submission really is about saying, yes, Lord. Yes. And then commit. Commit to the adjustments. Commit to walking in the change. Commit to saying yes. We're going to talk about that a lot more next week in our final of this series about um, the the final uh, reality. You come to know God by experience as you obey Him and He accomplishes His work through you. We're going to talk a lot more about obedience next week. But we're making these shifts. They're coming. There's movement. And He wants to bring forth something transformational in our lives. This day, we sang it. We began this service. Great song. I love that song. This day, He's inviting us to be His ambassadors of reconciliation. This day, He's asking us to have our whole lives transformed, to move foundation stones. He's after radical shift in us. Oh, dear Lord, help us.